0: And thanks for listening
1: Hey, climate conscious listeners. this is Greg Dalton. You're listening to the C1 Review, a podcast presenting highlights from some of our past shows. You can join the conversation using our Twitter handle at Climate One. Let us know what you think about powering America's future
2: this is Climate one a conversation about powering America's future. today, our host Greg Dalton is talking about the American automobile. Addressing the climate conundrum has to include managing the carbon budget of our cars. Detroit is working on this.
3: We just need to keep making all of our vehicles, from the biggest vehicle we build right down to the smallest, the most fuel efficient that we possibly can.
2: Or maybe it's time to give up on gasoline altogether. Is the carbon-free electric vehicle ready for prime time?
4: If you look at the success of the Chevy Volt, the satisfactory rate of those customers, they are the most happy vehicle owners of any vehicle out there.
2: Cars and Carbon, up next on Climate One. is changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Claire Schoen. Climate One conversations with big corporations and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. never win the climate change challenge if we don't change the way we make and drive cars. In the US, personal vehicles account for nearly one-fifth of all our greenhouse gas emissions. And if you add in trucks, trains, planes, and ships, it's more than a quarter of our contribution to climate pollution. So how do we cut down on carbon coming out of the tailpipe? Detroit is still Mecca for American-made cars. And Greg talked to a politician and a businessman who have helped engineer the economic comeback for Detroit's automotive industry. William Clay Ford Jr. is executive chairman of Ford Motor Company and the great-grandson of Henry Ford. He's also a founder and a partner in an investment firm that has a stake in the ride-hailing app company Lyft. Rick Snyder was also a career business executive and venture capitalist before winning the Michigan State House with the campaign slogan, One Tough Nerd. He's now in his second term as Michigan's Republican governor. Here's Greg Dalton in conversation with two tough nerds.
1: Governor Snyder, last time I sat down with a Republican governor, it was Rick Perry. He was in California trying to court Tesla to come to Texas. He had successfully brought the Toyota headquarters from Los Angeles to Texas. He was offering low taxes, business-friendly state. So what does Michigan offer to California businesses, and particularly the auto industry, uh, in your state of the Midwest?
5: I view the role of government is not to create jobs. It's to create an environment to let free enterprise work. And we've done that in terms of tax, regulatory environment, actually balancing our budgets, novel ideas that we could use in Washington. But beyond that, if you look at the most important thing that I think you're going to see, not just today but in the future, is the need to make sure we have hardworking, great people, which we have in Michigan in great numbers and wonderful people, but they need the right skills. We need to do more in STEM education. We need to do more in the skilled trades. We need to reestablish career tech education as a positive career track. I want to maintain Michigan's leadership in that and actually enhance it. Bill
1: Ford, perception in California is a little bit different. There's Tesla here that has about 6,000 employees now. Apple's poised to enter into the, the auto industry. And when you look at the future of connected cars, that sort of thing, there's a lot of excitement in the auto industry. Is it shifting to California or is it, is it a balance?
3: It's not an either or between Michigan and, and California. I think, I think you'll see blurred lines. I mean, we, we manufacture things very well in Michigan We are uh, the largest users of high technology. Our industry is the biggest R&D spender of all. And we have a big Silicon Valley office, Ford does. And so they're coming together in a way that I think is going to be really interesting, really healthy. And we're going to see degrees of change in the next 10 years that we haven't seen in the prior hundred. The New York Times recently
1: wrote that new high-end cars are among the most sophisticated machines on the planet. There's 100 million lines of code in a new car. 60 million lines in all of Facebook. So connected cars, that presents some opportunities as well as some challenges. We've seen a Jeep hacked recently, mm-hmm. taken over, and there's concern about privacy. So, Bill Ford, how, what's the promise and also the, the
3: risks of um, connected cars? Well, I mean, look, it's, it's not technology for technology's sake. You know, I start the day saying, are we making people's lives better and easier? Which is why it was so important to me that we get on the right environmental equation years ago when I was castigated for that, because I thought that was something that was a barrier to making people's lives better. And then in 2010-11, I started talking about global gridlock, because shoving more cars into a crowded world, to me, didn't make any sense. And the same thing is, is true of technology. Technology, for its own sake, makes no sense. If we are using technology to actually enhance people's lives and make their lives easier, then it's great. Another area of innovation is robotics. we uh, are replacing jobs.
1: That's yeah. technology and in innovation. It creates some jobs, Bill Ford. It, it replaces mm-hmm. others. Mm-hmm. So how about uh, innovation and automation in, in the auto industry and the tension with job creation?
3: Well, you know, look, any time you've got progress, there's always tension with um, with traditional jobs. But, you know, w- one of the things that we do a lot of is retraining of our employees. And we're on a net hiring uh, and have been for some years. We're actually adding jobs even as we're growing, but they are different kinds of jobs. I mean, we just added 200 software engineers, you know, very recently and working on electrification. But those aren't 200 traditional jobs. Rick
1: Snyder, a lot of Republican presidential candidates and others are – Doubting climate science, even though Walmart and Ford Motor Company and the biggest corporations are on board saying it's an opportunity and a risk. What do you think about where your party is on climate change?
5: Well, the way I view it is we need to be proactive and address climate change. A lot of people want to fight and blame about how it happened. I just acknowledge it's there. It's something we have to be proactive on and deal with and in a proactive way. I'm very proud of the energy policy I put forward earlier this year. And it was about really moving to a more affordable, more reliable, more environmentally sustainable energy policy for the long term. And one of the problems we have in this country is we lack a national energy policy. Well, if we lack a national energy policy, I'm proud to step up and put a state one out that talks about moving away from coal and moving to much cleaner sources. And then saying within that context, how do we look at the next 20 or 30 years to say, how can we, first of all, deal with eliminating energy waste? That's the part that drives me crazy, that people don't talk about the elimination of waste as much as they should. And then beyond that, how can you strike a good balance, particularly of natural gas and renewables, whether it be wind and solar and strike the right balance to adapt to differing pricing environments and different demand needs? Um, And how do you make all that work? And I think we put together a strong package that I'm very excited by.
1: This plan, this Clean Power Plan, which is complying with President Obama's Clean Power Plan, was supported by environmentalists, the Christian coalition, industry, uh, health groups. I couldn't find anyone. uh, Everybody was on board. It seems to be something very unusual in American politics today is to get arguing people on board when Indiana and Oklahoma and other states are fighting this. So this is quite an accomplishment.
5: I have a philosophy I call a relentless positive action, which means... No blame, no fighting. What's the problem? What's the common sense solution? Just go get it done and go on to the next problem.
1: Bill Ford, climate risk, clean energy. What is the company doing to to get more of its energy cleaner? Uh, I know you did some zero waste announcements recently from one of your facilities. So no waste coming out of
3: your design facility. We actually have, I think, a hundred facilities now that have zero landfill at all. And, um, you know, we set water targets long before most industrial companies, I think, before any of them did. We've cut our water usage by 60% because, you know, people don't realize that manufacturing actually uses a lot of water. And, you know, we published the first in our industry one of the first in the world sustainability reports. It's been, what, 12 years now or something. And when we came out with it, people said, wait, you're criticizing yourself because we measure ourselves every year and where we fall short, we own up to it and we talk about it. And it's become part of the culture. So... By virtue of being a manufacturing company, we're always going to have things to work on. One of the things I'm most proud of is is our Rouge Assembly Plant, where we, I think you know Bill McDonough, he worked with me to turn the world's largest brownfield site into the greenest assembly plant in the world. And we're replicating a lot of that now in our other facilities, but there's all kinds of cool stuff. We turn our paint fumes into power, which powers a fuel cell that helps power a plant. We worked with Michigan State to put in a field of plants that suck up anything bad, and what comes out the other way is drinking quality water. Before, those were shoved into big PVC tubes and discharged in the Detroit River. And we have porous pavement now everywhere, so the rainwater just goes into the ground. And most of these ideas came from our employees. Uh, it was very cool. Once we asked them, gave them permission, saying, what would you do to turn this plant into the you know most environmentally friendly plant, and also a human space, a place you'd like to work, what would you do? And we were flooded with ideas, and it, it
1: was, it's been great. But early on, it was tough for you to come out as an environmentalist within the company.
3: What was the initial reaction when you <laughs> brought environmental awareness? Well, literally, I was told uh, when I joined the board, uh, I think I was in my 20s still, that I had to stop associating with any known or suspected environmentalists, um, <laughs> and uh, – Uh, Of course, I didn't. But then I think it was in 99, uh, I addressed the Greenpeace annual conference and I was the first non-NGO type to ever do that, much less business person, much less, you know, manufacturing business person. I'm not sure who was more freaked out by it: the Greenpeace people or the people back in Dearborn, Michigan. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I always felt that it was really important to build bridges, that the two sides couldn't continue just to lob bombs at each other and nothing would get done. And that uh, we had to work collaboratively to solve these huge problems. Because to go back to what I said a minute ago, I think any company should exist to make people's lives better. And this was something that was an inhibitor to that, and I felt we had to just get on with
1: it. And since that time, academic studies have shown that companies that have good sustainability records also have good financial records.
3: One of the things that I was most proud of after 30 years of this fight, it wasn't always a fight, but often it was, it was a struggle, was last year, Innerbrand, which tracks all brands, named us the greenest brand in the world. And that wasn't just auto brands. It was of any brand. And they track you in two ways. One is the perception of your brand. And the second is what you're actually doing. And then combined, what, what I was happy about was our perception was good, but what we were actually doing was even better. Whereas some of the brands uh, had high reputations, but actually not a lot sustaining that. So to me, that was a huge, I don't want to say vindication, but it was, a, it was, in some ways it was, that it was the right right path to be on. I'd like to go now to our lightning round, where we will just
1: ask a series of uh, brief yes or no questions, starting with Bill Ford. Yes or no, your children secretly yearn to buy an Apple car. No. No. <laughs> will you disinherit them if they do? Yes. <laughs> okay. Rick Snyder, Jerry Brown wants to stick a straw in your drink and bring Great Lakes water to California. No. (laughs) (laughs) Bill Ford, real men don't eat quiche or drive aluminum trucks. False. The VW cheating scandal was enabled by poor board governance. Pass. Rick Snyder, the stock market values Tesla at thirty-one billion dollars. I think Ford is somewhere in the fifty-billion-dollar range. That's for Tesla. That's six hundred thousand dollars for each car it makes and sells for about hundred thousand dollars. Is Tesla stock overvalued?
5: I think you answered your question, <laughs> but, <laughs> I wanted, but you have more credibility than I do. So, <laughs> is that a yes? Uh, well, from your math, I would be in an account. I say you probably got there. Bill Ford, Tesla
1: makes sexy cars. Yes. Rick Snyder, burning fossil fuels is causing rising temperatures on land and in the Great Lakes. Um, Yes. Bill Ford, the requirement that cars on average achieve 55 miles per gallon in 10 years is
3: reasonable and achievable. 55 miles a gallon. I know. I I mean, it's (laughs) technically, yes. If the customer wants them, don't know. Bill Ford, how much did... Ford pay to the Catholic Church to get the Pope to ride around in a Ford Focus. <laughs> <laughs> hey, when I saw him, he was riding around that Fiat uh, the whole time. At, uh, <laughs> in the United States, and he he rides I, in a Ford in no, Europe. Oh, he does. He <laughs> does drive a, a, a Ford overseas, and yeah, but somehow Fiat got him into the one here, and that got all the airtime. No, I mean, I, I actually, I think it's very cool that the Pope is chosen to you know drive in a, a Ford Focus rather than a big limo.
1: How uh, how they do on the lightning round? I think they did pretty good. Let's give them. This, <laughs> Also on the
3: Pope, he's made climate change a moral issue. Bill Ford, is climate change a moral issue? You know, it's a huge societal issue. It's one that you and I have talked about before. It's the one that I'll continue to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I think anybody who doesn't think it's a big issue, you know, it's very short-term in their orientation.
2: This is Climate One. We're talking today about the new generation of cars coming out of Detroit. We'd like to know what you think about decarbonizing cars. Our email is commonwealthclub.org. And our Twitter handle is at Climate One. Greg Dalton will continue his conversation with William Clayford Jr. and Governor Rick Snyder in just a moment. We're picking up our conversation now with William Clayford Jr., Governor Rick Snyder, and our host, Greg Dalton.
1: Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club.
3: My question is for Governor Snyder. A question about clean energy policy at the state level. In Michigan, you're trying to grow the economy, cut emissions, comply with the federal clean power plan uh, while avoiding new government mandates. Many Michigan companies, such as Herman Miller and Amway, say they want to green their power, but they can't because, or they can't green their power additionally because of the cap on uh, electric choice. New companies that want to green their power more than what they can get from the utilities, tough luck. In California, same situation. A lot of tech companies want to green their power, but they're stuck with what the local utilities give them. So the question really is, in Michigan and elsewhere, why not allow an expansion of electric choice for renewables only to let companies and universities and school districts, large electric users, to
5: go as green as they want? Thank you. Governor Snyder. Yeah, what I'd say is is we're going to see a big shift to more renewables with the policy we put forward. There's a major change there. There's a separate issue on the question of choice, and the real issue on choice that we're addressing that actually I think allows for people to be greener, to look at renewables and such, is one of the problems we have 10% choice in Michigan today. I haven't recommended getting rid of choice. What I've said is if you want to have a choice, you need to prove you can actually provide your power because choice without being able to provide your power means you're actually relying on everyone else to be your backup, and they have to build that capacity so you're getting an unfair subsidization at the expense of everyone else. So what we're trying to do with this policy is to say, if you can show you can provide your power, and, again, I will double-check. I'm not sure why that couldn't include renewables or other green sources. As long as they actually make that investment to provide that power, there could be opportunity there. The one challenge I will mention to you is a technical issue, you have the issue about intermittent power and how do you make sure you have the power on 24 by 7, so particularly for some of these organizations, are they going to rely on batteries or other backup or how do you balance that off? So overall, conceptually what you said, I'm very open to that, but if people have choice, it's not simply saying, well, I want to go buy on the spot market and then have everybody else as your backup. You need to actually provide that power or have a contract for someone to provide it. Let's go to our next question. Welcome.
3: Hi, uh, this is Ford Bill. You've talked a lot about mobility and the challenges of urban gridlock, but can you help us understand why, as an automaker, it's important that Ford start thinking about these challenges and what can they do about them? I gave a TED Talk in 2011 about global gridlock. At the time, nobody was talking about it. People were looking at rising GDPs around the world, they were looking at a rising middle class, and they were extrapolating out, wow, isn't this fantastic? We'll be able to sell you know, infinitely more vehicles into the future. And I simply said, how and where? Uh, already in most major cities around the world, it's very tough to get around. As we go from 7 billion people on the planet to 9 billion by mid-century, and you also have an urbanization trend, um, you start adding it up, and it didn't make any sense. So how are we going to make people's lives in cities better? And it won't be trying to put two cars in every garage in Mumbai. And we're already seeing, you know, whether it's Uber or Lyft or Zipcar or, you know, there are lots of different examples of people trying to grapple with this. So I think it's very important that we do solve it. I also look at vehicles and say, what if we could go beyond just solving a problem? What if we could actually make people's lives better with our vehicles? Let me give you an example. So we're writing an experiment now in India where we actually are taking um, uh, four wheel drive vehicles that are connected vehicles. We're driving them to rural areas where uh, the expectant mothers don't have uh, access to doctors and we can upload all their data and send it real time back to hospitals and to doctors. And we can monitor that mother's pregnancy through the throughout her entire pregnancy and get advice to her as well. So to me, that's, beyond how do we solve gridlock, which, which we can and will do, uh, but then it's taking a step further. How do we actually make people's lives, personal lives, better? Some of it will be, if we solve gridlock, giving people back their most precious commodity, which is time. Some of it might be to deliver health care in a way that people hadn't thought of. You know, and I'm always pushing our organization to think of new things where we can, again, make people's lives better. That's so next question. Welcome.
0: Yeah, hi. This is another question for Bill. Why do Americans love the F-150 so much? And <laughs> how long do you see this trend of you know, auto sales continuing? Is it because of lower gas prices? Is it pent-up demand?
3: So we took a decision when we came out of the dark days. We, you know, we didn't go bankrupt. Some of our competitors did. And one of the, the decisions we made at that time was I, I said to Alan Mulally, who was our CEO. In fact, he had, hadn't even started. It was the first day we interviewed. I said, there's no point... In going through all the pain we're going to have to go through if we don't fundamentally remake our company coming out of it. And one of the things that I really want to hang our hat on is fuel economy, and not just small cars. Why can't we make every vehicle uh, that we make, wherever it competes, the most fuel-efficient in that segment? So we introduced something called EcoBoost, which we we rolled out on an F-150, and we rolled it out in a six-cylinder when everybody was selling eight-cylinder pickups. And there were a lot of people who said, you know, that doesn't make any sense. The truck buyer will never buy a fuel-efficient F-150. It's worked really well. So, yeah, there's no question that today's low gas prices are shifting mix all across the industry, whether it's trucks, bigger cars, whatever. But that won't last forever. And so we just need to keep making all of our vehicles from the biggest vehicle we build right down to the smallest – the most fuel efficient that we possibly can. And that, you know, that includes gasoline, hybrids, plug-ins, pure electrics, maybe hydrogen, although, you know, that's still a TBD. Um, but you know, all these things are we just have to keep pushing pushing on it. Ford doesn't seem to have as many electric cars
1: as some other car companies. You've kind of EcoBoost is basically turbocharging, making the internal
3: combustion more efficient. Do you think that electrics remain a niche or do you think they become more mainstream? Oh, they'll definitely become more mainstream, and there's sort of three categories. There's pure electric, there's plug-in hybrids, and then there's conventional hybrids, all of which are kind of electric, all have different affordability and range and desirability characteristics to them. And we'll see a blend, I think, for a while, but no, they won't be niche. The electrification is here. It's going to keep going. I actually like the plug-in hybrid uh, as a really interesting transitional technology Because pure electric is obviously a great technology, but it's expensive, and there are still some range anxieties that go along with that. And if you only own one vehicle, you don't want to have to worry about, can I drive from San Francisco to Los Angeles? And if I do, how do do I do that? So I think as batteries get better and as they become more affordable, you'll see more pure electric. But until then, the plug-in is a really interesting transitional technology because if all you did was ride around San Francisco all week, you'd only ride on battery. But if you wanted to go skiing on the weekend, you'd discharge your battery, and then a conventional hybrid would kick in, and off you would go. So I think long-winded way of saying, no, it's not a niche. There's no question that today's gas prices are a bit of an inhibitor to adoption because customers are doing the pocketbook math and sort of saying, hmm, not so sure. But that equation will change.
1: There's a battery startup called Sock 3 that spun out of the University of Michigan that may be a, a big change, in, uh, and the battery business would make Tesla look like old technology. It may or may not pan out, but that would be a game changer. Let's go to our next question of the Commonwealth Club for Bill Ford and Governor Snyder. Thank
5: you for sharing your ideas. With a group, we're bringing data science, data visualization to politics. as a nonprofit helping explain the issues in a clear way. question I have is we're looking at energy, and it's tricky. If there were to be a federal policy... Would you prefer a carbon tax or cap and trade? Governor Snyder? That's not just something I'm going to give you a quick answer to because that needs a lot of homework. I mean, this is a case of we're very fortunate in our country where I think we have an opportunity to see a lot more energy independence, but at the same time we need to move cleaner and cleaner. And that's where, if you look at it in Michigan, the energy policy I talked about doesn't really talk about either one of those, but we can show massive improvement. As we progress in this process, I think that's one of the great things, the states. Some states are looking at other models. Um, that's one reason I like being a governor. It, it's the laboratory of democracy are the states, because you get different states trying different things. And I like that. I want competition from the other states, and let's figure out what the best practice is.
1: Are you going to put a price on carbon in Michigan?
5: No. I don't. If you look at the process we're moving in, we're and at, we're at today in terms of what I promoted, it's not really required. We're actually showing we're moving in a very good direction and at a very good pace um, without requiring that. It's to move away, though, from coal dramatically.
1: Bill Ford ending, we are baby boomers, all of us up here. We have children. What is our
3: generation leaving to the next generation?
1: What's our legacy going to be?
3: Well, we're leaving them a lot of problems. We're also leaving them a lot of hope. Uh, Look, when I started off being an environmentalist, being an environmentalist meant you were against everything because that was all you could do. You could protest. You could be... But you couldn't be for anything because there were no solutions. Technology is setting us free. I don't mean to hang it all on technology. We have to have smart policies. We have to really figure out. But at least now, there's a path uh, for a lot of our problems. And so, unfortunately, we will be leaving our kids some problems. But I also think we'll be leaving them some hope and some energy, personal energy, around the fact that these problems can be tackled. And I think to be an environmentalist now, I notice a big difference in young people. When I was coming up, It was all about protesting. Now they just say, give me a problem, let's solve it.
2: You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton has been talking about creating clean cars with Governor Rick Snyder and Ford Motor Company Executive Chairman William Clay Ford, Jr., We're going to turn now to a conversation about where green cars will be made in the future. While efforts are underway to lower the MPGs on personal cars in America, the real prize is the zero-emissions electric car. And Detroit is wrestling with Silicon Valley to bring out the first affordable and long-range all-electric automobile. Greg has invited two heavyweights for an electric car smackdown. In one corner is Chad Balch. He's the Environment and Energy Communications Manager at General Motors. In the other corner is Dermot O'Connell, Vice President of Business Development at Tesla, California's high-end all-electric luxury car. And in between is Hector De La Torre, a member of the California Air Resources Board. ¶¶ Here's Greg with an electrifying conversation about cars of the future. Hector De La Torre,
1: let's begin with you. Governor Brown has a plan for fighting,
2: an aggressive plan for fighting
1: carbon pollution in California. Transportation's a big part of that. What's the governor doing and how's that going right now?
6: Almost half of the greenhouse gas emissions are related to the use of petroleum in California. And then that is the core of, of what we're trying to do to reduce greenhouse gases in general. We're doing it through reducing vehicle miles traveled and making communities more sustainable, easier to walk, bike, etc. We're doing it through a low-carbon fuel standard, promoting zero-emission vehicles, which is very important, uh, and increasing the use of renewable fuels that are less carbon-intensive.
1: Chad Bolch, what part of that plan, Governor Brown's plan, is GM on board with? What part do you find some some differences with?
4: Well, the administration has been very supportive of helping create the market for EVs, and that has allowed us to, to come out in full force and, and really achieve some pretty good success with the first-generation Chevrolet Volt, the second-generation Chevrolet Volt, which just went on sale, the upcoming Chevy Bolt EV concept car, uh, the Spark EV. So all of these plug-in cars the success of them and the market's willingness to adopt them is really in large part due to the collaboration between the automakers the utility stakeholders and government.
1: Dermot O'Connell, um, how much of it is important for for Tesla? Could you do it without this supportive policy environment?
7: Well, fundamentally electric vehicles are going to be successful in the long run because it's more fun, it's a it's a high performance vehicle, it's safer. Um, the handling is better, um, and, of course, it's got the zero emissions profile. So fundamentally, this is going to be driven over the long term by market forces. That having been said, the policy arena is, is really important. Unfortunately, the big car companies, all things being equal, would rather continue to do what they're doing. And it doesn't make them bad people to say that. It's just that they've made huge investments in internal combustion technology, uh, and they don't have a natural incentive to make that technology obsolete. This goes back to why we started Tesla Motors in the first place, was to provide a catalyst from outside the existing industry to put the best possible expression of electric vehicle technology on the road uh, and to inspire competition to come into that market happily. That's starting to take place now, but it's a slow process. So, Shad Bolts, it sounds like Dermot O'Connell just said that
1: auto companies are only doing EVs as much as the government is requiring them. That's basically said you're greenwashing. I have to take issue with that. We sell more trucks and SUVs than anything right now because
4: that's where the market—I mean, the market demands that. That's where we make the bulk of our money. But that is changing. That is not the world of tomorrow. And if you look at the success of the Chevy Volt and the the satisfactory rate of those customers, they are the most happy vehicle owners of any vehicle out there. It is, by all accounts, probably the most successful vehicle we've ever done. So to say that we're fighting against policymakers to keep the status quo is just not valid. I mean, the direction of the company in Detroit has fundamentally changed. There are scientists and engineers in labs inventing things on the daily that are going to be put in vehicles that either use little gas or no gas at all. That is where we're headed.
1: Hector Latorre, you deal with car companies. You're one of their top regulators in the country. Do you see the kind of change that Shad Bulch is talking about?
6: It's, uh, it's like pulling teeth. Uh. <laughs> We very much see the progress that Chad is talking about, but it is a constantly questioned, not specific to GM just in general Chad volch the the
4: regulation forces us to sell cars. it doesn't force you to buy cars, so we have to we have to make sure that the market drives this approach otherwise it's, it's going to backfire on all of us.
7: Dear middle-connell, this is the story that we've heard out of the auto industry forever. You can't force us to build what the public won't buy. Well, how would the public even know that this technology was available without these technology forcing regulations in the first place? Look, I'm thrilled that GM is producing the Volt. The progenitor, which was not the, a technology the, 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 forced what, let me, car let me at finish, all. Let me finish. It was actually, if you if you credit Bob Lutz as the progenitor of that car, it was born out of a reaction to what we announced with the Tesla Roadster in 2006. And he went to his guys and said, "You're telling me that." These electric vehicles, they can't be done, and this puny little company in in California is doing it, so what the heck? And then they start producing the Volt. They generally do the absolute minimum that's necessary to comply with whatever regulatory scheme they're looking at, and that's a rational decision. If you really want to understand what GM's thinking about, look at the massive investments they're making in their SUV plant in Arlington, Texas, to produce Suburbans versus what they're doing for their Volt and their Bolt program. We need multiple mass market ev programs on the road right now and the fact is that really there's only one legacy manufacturer who's doing that and that's nissan point is to get these cars in people's hands and right now the policy is critical chad Balch, your response to that well the
4: number one selling plug-in in in the country was the chevy volt the gen one that is not a car that was built to meet a regulated mandate at all so this notion that we're building these cars only to meet a regulatory requirement is just false we're investing right now $200 million into our Orion assembly plant to build the Chevy Bolt EV. That is happening right now. We've invested $400 million so far in a battery lab in Brownstown, Michigan, which is developing the next generation batteries for the Bolt and Volt. So the investment is there. You know, the, the notion that we're not committed or that we're only building cars to meet a regulatory requirement is I, just I think the
7: false. notion is not that you're not committed, but you're conflicted. That's my point. If, I, I if I'm you're, not no, no, def- no, wait, wait, wait. If you're saying that you're not lobbying... For softening of CAFE and the ZEV mandate in the midterm saying. reviews, right? You're not saying that. So, so that's what I'm saying. It's like we need sort of clear signals to the market. We need unambiguous programs. And General Motors, for all the good you're doing on the Volt and the Bolt program, is is conflicted. And and no, so, I, I'm and, just and our business
4: is different. You're you're I'm, a single product automaker. I'm a full line automaker. So it's we just have different
6: business models. And, 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 and I will interject Hector, here. The, the Bolt. From our perspective, is a game changer—a 200-mile range, 30-something thousand-dollar car. That is a game changer in the electric vehicle marketplace, and so GM does deserve a lot of credit for bringing that car to the market. And we need more of that car in the market so people have choice.
1: Let's talk about the price of gasoline. Gas is cheap. Shed How much of that is a factor if, if gas goes? up again and maybe you start selling fewer SUVs, or that means you're going to start investing more in those battery plants than the SUV plants that Dermot just mentioned?
4: No, that premise is false. The, the investment plans for both technologies is set. That is going forward, both for SUVs and for our electric cars. But the price of gas is a real problem in terms of our ability to sell these cars. When the price of gas goes up, the full-size SUVs and truck sales drop. When prices go down, people go and buy the, the big trucks and full-size SUVs. And that bipolar element that we have to deal with is extremely
1: frustrating when
4: we're trying to have a stable market for EVs.
1: Hector De La Torre, Americans have short memories. When the gas goes down, they go right for that SUV with all that fancy package.
6: And that's why we, we wanted to have all of the variety for the consumer to choose from. It isn't just battery electric, which we're talking about here. We're also promoting hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. So the Toyota Mirai just was released zero emission vehicle. The state is funding the infrastructure, the stations, the hydrogen pumps at gas stations around the state. We're doing the initial investment to make sure that that infrastructure is there so that people can fuel up again. That is another path. We want more options for the consumer at all price points. We're not picking winners in this. We want all of the options and the consumers will decide
2: We're talking about electric cars at Climate One. Free podcasts of this and other Climate One conversations are available on our website at climateone.org. Greg will continue this conversation in just a moment. We're picking up the conversation now about Detroit and Silicon Valley with GM's Shad Balch, Tesla's Dermot O'Connell... Hector De La Torre of the California Air Resources Board, and our host, Greg Dalton. Here's Greg.
1: A few years ago, if we were having this conversation, drop-in biofuels would have been a lot of what we're talking about, cellulosic from algae and all these sorts of things. Those haven't materialized as promised. Are they done, or is it just a matter of time, Hector De La Torre? It's, it's absolutely
6: part of what we're doing under the low-carbon fuel standard. It's a blend fuel that we have, and our target is to be at 10% by 2020 we think we can increase that as part of the governor's mandate to hit 50% reduction in petroleum by 2030 we can increase that 10% and blend in more of the biofuels there is one manufacturer one producer who produces half of the biofuels the, the renewable fuels that are used in California today so when the oil companies are telling us that there isn't capacity that there isn't enough of this fuel it's just wrong if one manufacturer can produce half of what we're using, then clearly there is capacity.
1: Chad Bulch, a lot of flex fuel vehicles, but that really in the Midwest, that means corn, which is kind of out of favor these days because it competes with food, not so good. Where do you see uh, other types of fuels being blended with gasoline to kind of wean us away from petroleum?
4: One of the quickest and, and uh, most efficient ways to reduce fuel consumption is to put these cars on a diet. The more weight you move from them, the more economic they become. So we're investing a lot of work in technology to use smart materials and mixed materials. So our engineers just invented this welding technique where you can weld aluminum to steel. So that'll allow for the car to be structurally sound but significantly lighter. The gasoline-powered engines themselves are becoming extremely fuel-efficient, you know, shutting off half the cylinders when you don't need it, direct fuel injection and technologies like that. So we're finding real savings in a variety of different ways aside from having to tamper with the fuel itself.
1: And the Ford F-150 pickup truck, often the best-selling car in America, shed 800 pounds by going aluminum, that that kind of thing. Right. Dear Mitt O'Connell, the Gigafactory, Tesla Gigafactory, is going to start producing batteries in 2016. There's a claim. Right now Tesla makes about 50,000 cars, and there's a claim on the website for the Gigafactory about 500,000 cars by 2020. Is that really going to
7: happen? Yeah, so the Gigafactory, which is a uh, facility being built outside of Reno, Nevada right now, is a concept where we're taking all of the production processes uh, in the development and production of a lithium-ion battery and putting it in one facility. It will, at full capacity, exceed the capacity of the lithium-ion battery industry right now. The reason we are doing that is to facilitate the mass market program which we'll be introducing in 2017, the uh, the Model 3 program, really the the car that the, the company was set up to build. You know, we had to proceed from a low volume, high price car, our Tesla Roadster, to a mid volume, mid-priced car, the car we have right now, the Model S and its variant, the Model X. But the whole company was set up to get this mass market EV, what we call the Model Three. So absolutely we'll have it will have. So tenfold increase in production in, in five years. Yep, absolutely.
1: Chad Bolch, seems like the Chevy Bolt and the Model 3 are kind of going after that, that middle market. Is that middle market really there enough for Bolt and the, the Model 3 to have that many EVs sold in America to kind of middle-class families at around, what, $30,000?
4: Yeah, I think that's, that's sort of the secret sauce, is the range of about 200 miles at least with the price of about $30,000 before some of the incentives. That is the sweet spot that we think that we'll really be able to penetrate into the marketplace and get these cars picked up in larger volumes, for sure. Once people drive the cars, they fall in love with them. I mean, EVs are, across the board, by far superior than conventional gas-powered cars, and people realize that once they get to spend a little bit of time driving one. So figuring out the way to communicate that is what's going to be key to getting people to pay attention to these cars in the showroom.
1: To anyone who's driven an electric car, that immediate torque, it's much better, and yet it seems like a lot of the ads are about polar bears and virtue and all these kind of good, good things. Well, They're not is, about the... raw... Yeah, you know, and that's a problem. Testosterone fun. A
4: car is probably the second most expensive purchase a lot of us are going to make, and to try and convey a social responsibility in order to, to spend that kind of money on a product like that is a really hard proposition. You've got to do what sells, and that is performance and looks and the way you feel when you drive it.
1: Chad Balch, Apple, Google, other companies, technology companies getting into these mobile technology platforms. How's that going to change the auto industry? And it seems like the center of innovation, if not gravity, is moving from Detroit to Silicon Valley.
4: Well, I mean, Silicon Valley certainly is really good at what it does. And um, the technology that comes from this area I think does have a place in the auto industry in other parts of the country. So I don't think it's an, an either-or scenario. I think that there are some probably interesting collaborations that will happen. We've partnered with Google last year on a, a car-sharing program, which basically allowed Googlers to, through an app, connect together based on your schedule and your the time that you need to travel to and from work. And we provided the cars, Spark EVs, for them to demonstrate this sort of car-sharing platform too. So I think there's a place for all of these stakeholders to come together and probably come up with some pretty interesting solutions to some of these problems that we've been talking about.
7: Dear Bill O'Connell, this is a great thing that we're seeing here. The emergence of new entrants, the emergence of Silicon Valley as a center of gravity for automotive technology. If I have one critique of the incumbent industry as I came into it 10 years ago, and I had no prior experience in automotive, was that you know, it was an industry with a lot of delivered wisdom, which was highly geographically centralized in Detroit. And there were some super smart folks there, but this constellation where all the ideas are coming out of one center of gravity. Uh, It's not a rich system. I think it's great what's happening right now. You know, there are winners and losers here, but I think that's a good thing. I mean, it's going to lead to more solutions, more diversification. Variety is a good thing. Variety is a great thing in terms of the brands and the products that we have. It's a great thing from a national security perspective in terms of the fuel sources that we power our transportation on. So um, this is all great. Do some auto dealers and auto companies try to make life difficult for Tesla because
1: the way they sell their cars directly to uh, consumers rather than through dealers?
4: <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't work in a, in a store, so it's, I can't say for sure. I do know that with these new cars coming into dealers, there is a lot of effort being paid to try and make sure that they understand where this fits in their lineup and why this is an important technology that they need to sell. There's a lot of legacy behaviors in car dealers that we're trying to overcome to help figure this out, how to better get over, you know, their old habits of selling vehicles so that they're focused on what the most important thing is.
7: Middle O'Connell? I sympathize with Chad, but I wish it was just habits. It's actually incentives. You know, Tesla sells direct through our own stores. We have our own distribution, our own stores, and our own service. The reason we did this is because we had an unambiguous interest in making sure customers had a great experience. The dealer system works like this. A manufacturer like GM sells 100 cars to a dealer who then resells them with a markup to you, the general public. But the dealers make very little money on selling you a car. Where they make the bulk of their money is in the service and parts business when you bring that vehicle back to be serviced or in the financing. But on the service and parts piece, electric vehicle technology basically takes that piece out in large part. I mean, Tesla has the goal of making no money on the service side of our business. And so this is why we set the system up. The good news is that we can sell in most parts of the country directly to the public, but in a certain a couple of key states, Texas and Michigan, we're barred from selling direct. Now those people in Texas and Michigan, and we have huge populations of cars there, can still go to our website, call us up, order a car, but we're constrained to sort of drop shipping the car pretty much like Amazon drops a car in front of your house. So that's, that's a little bit, that's not a great customer experience, and we're trying to fix that. But the good news is that, for the most part, we can sell directly across the country.
4: Chad Balch, again, we're in different businesses, Tesla and us. I mean, they have one product. It's much easier to do that. Our dealers sell a full line, and also they make most of their money on the used car business. I mean, those places have to exist as well, and a lot of those are integrated into new car dealers. So the models are very different.
7: We're both selling cars, let's be clear. We're both selling cars, whether or not we have one car or you have hundreds of cars. That's not the difference. The difference is that in almost all states in the country, a manufacturer who's had a dealer is barred from selling direct. And as a matter of principle, I don't think that's right. But that's the, that's the constraint that they have on their system. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One.
0: Hi, I'm Dana Hull. I'm actually a journalist at Bloomberg News. And this is a question for Hector. The Volkswagen diesel emissions scandal is still in its early stages. We have a lot more discovery and investigations to go through before we even get to the penalty phase. But my question is, is there a discussion in Sacramento as to how the fines that Volkswagen ultimately is going to have to pay to the state of California will be used? Will it be funneled to you know asthma prevention or a furtherance of ZEV incentives? I mean, what's the kind of thinking as to how the fines are going to be used? Well,
6: you cannot start... Pinning that down until you know the scale that you're talking about. Is it the first batch of vehicles that that we caught? Is it now the second batch of vehicles? Is there going to be further batches of vehicles that we discover this with? And so we don't know the scale, uh, and until we do, uh, we are just looking at what some possibilities might be.
1: That's our next question. Welcome to Climate One. So I'm Bill Bunin. Uh, I own a hybrid and it's reduced the amount of pollution I'm responsible for
4: significantly, and it's paid for itself in fuel savings. It has not imposed any sorts of additional problems for me, like range anxiety or anything like that. And in spite of that, hybrid sales are an anemic percentage of the total car sales in the world. Is that something we should be worried about?
6: Shad Balch, there are only two states in the United States that do HOV access for for high mileage vehicles or zero emission vehicles, and a rebate program. That's us in Hawaii. And then there's only one other state that couples HOV status with a state tax rebate, and that is Utah. That's it. Three states that double up in the whole country, and that needs to improve.
7: Dear Mr. I would argue that I, I think it's terrific. Hybrid technology has sort of been a, a platform upon which electric vehicles have been able to, you know, step forward, and, and that's a good thing. But I think you have to ask yourself, you know, for the mass public, does a hybrid technology, does it offer all the utility, does it offer the performance that a pure electric vehicle might? I would submit that an electric vehicle is a much better performing vehicle, much better handling vehicle, and offers a better value proposition to the consumer. And that's why I say, at the end of the day, this technology will win because it's a better technology. And hybrid is, it's transitional and it's, it's had its benefits, but I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't achieve significant market share, especially in the face of the technologies that are coming forward, whether it's the plug-in hybrid technology of the Chevy Volt or, or the pure EV technology that we and others are offering. Let's go to our next question. Welcome.
5: So we all probably know that electric vehicles are only clean if you're getting energy from a clean source. So big problems in infrastructure and being able to create that energy. Is there anything that the manufacturers are doing to help excel that right now?
1: So if you're in a coal state, your EV car, dear Amit O'Connell, could be dirtier than a gasoline car.
7: Not really. Um, it's not, certainly not as clean, but it's, uh, it's cleaner, generally speaking, than petroleum-driven vehicles in, in its class. That's number one. Number two, what we are doing, to answer your question directly, is we've taken the battery technology we've developed for the vehicle and we're repackaging it uh, for energy storage. Energy storage gives you the ability to basically store generated energy, ideally renewable energy, so solar and wind and so forth, that's generated by day or during intermittent periods to store it for the time when you want to use it. Because if you've got solar and wind on this hand, if you've got the ability to store it and use it when you need it on the other, and an electric vehicle, then you can be essentially a net-zero enterprise. But this is really, I think, the true promise of electric vehicles. Bring renewables on, scale them incrementally, have storage there, and have the uh, have the ability to drive around on those electrons. So your electric car gets cleaner over time, unlike your gasoline car. Let's go to
1: our next question. Welcome.
5: Hi, Simon Mui with Natural Resources Defense Council, National Environmental Group. And we generally see California's program as a crown jewel for climate policies. This question is from my friend Chad. The auto industry group, Auto Alliance, has been petitioning Congress to remove California's authority to do these types of clean car programs going forward? How can informed companies like GM, who have been working around electric drive vehicles, help their auto industry groups and peers maybe move beyond this, this battle with uh, California's authority to establish these types of standards that are delivering these types of products to the market?
1: Sorry,
4: GM does not control the alliance, for sure. They take a lot of positions on their own. We are a member, but they do have their own agenda. What I can say is that when you look at our product portfolio, our goal is to not just meet the regulation, but to exceed it. That's, that's one of the interesting things about regulation is if you look at it as the target, you've leveled the playing field, and there's no competitive advantage. So if you're going to win, you have to use that as your benchmark and go above it. I mean, that's, that's
7: our position.
1: Let's get one last question.
7: My name is John Thomas. I'm from the Mad Hedge Fund Trader. My question is for Mr. McDermott. Cambridge University announced a new battery technology that increases your range by 500 percent. If that can be brought to commercial reality, it means cutting $24,000 off the price of your S1. Have you looked at this technology? Uh, This battery can be recharged 2,000 times. So there's already steady and really positive progress in terms of getting more energy into a given amount of space and a parallel reduction in cost. I think it's almost unimaginable, but with all of the investment that's gone into battery technology and all the excitement around electric vehicles that we're seeing right now in e-mobility generally, um, that you're not going to see a step function increase. Maybe it's the Cambridge technology that was just announced, maybe it's something else. The important thing about that announcement is where investment, where R&D, and where intellectual horsepower
2: is going. Greg Dalton has been discussing carbon-free electric cars with Shad Balch, Environment and Energy Communications Manager at General Motors, Deramid O'Connell, Vice President of Business Development at Tesla, and Hector de la Torre, a member of the California Air Resources Board. Free podcasts of all our Climate One conversations are available on our website at climateone.org, where you'll also find video clips, photos, and more. Please join us next time for another Climate One discussion about energy, economy, and environment. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California. Greg Dalton is our executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. I'm Claire Schoen, the editor. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. GM is a Climate One sponsor. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.